You're listening to the SSPX Podcast. This is a continuation of Father Mackin's series on catechism for young adults and children. If you would like to hear the first two episodes in this series, please just scroll back in your podcast feed or visit sspxpodcast.com and choose Episodes Catechism. Now, here's Father Mackin on the Fifth Commandment. Well, hello there and welcome. This is yet another catechism coming from my Catholic faith. Uh, my name is Father Patrick Mackin. Uh, from the catacombs, you might say, or from exile, we continue these catechism instructions. Hopefully you have found the previous ones useful on the third and fourth commandment. Uh, today we're going to go to the fifth commandment. And in our My Catholic Faith book, it's chapter 106. It's a two-part series, but we'll look first at uh, chapter 106. There's plenty of material. Um, and I think very interesting material as well. So let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall there be, world without end. Amen. St. Joseph, pray for us. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, dear friends, what will we see then today in this chapter 106 uh, concerning the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill? Uh, the first thing we're going to see is, obviously, what are we commanded by the fifth, fifth commandment? Uh, the second part of what we're going to see is, when is it lawful to take another's life? Is, it ever, is there ever a moment that would justify taking another's life? We will also look at... Um, the, the issues of what is anger, what is hatred and revenge, because they fall under the category of the fifth commandment. And some other questions that we hope to answer along the way, um, some of which is in the book and some of which is not. Um, first, concerning the doctrine of just war. You know, what, what is a just war? We live in an age where there seems to be always some sort of perpetual conflict going on somewhere in the world. And the United States is usually involved somehow. So we're going to try and look into the principles of, of what is a just war. Um, the, to the question of whether it's a sin to kill animals, you know, so I know that there's probably some boys listening that are, that are big hunters. Uh, so we'll, we'll jump into that question. On the question of euthanasia or mercy killing, is that ever permitted? Um, to the question of when is it permissible to stop giving treatment to the terminally ill? Someone who perhaps is in the hospital and they're in a coma and they're, they're hooked up to a machine that's breathing for them. When is it permissible to stop giving them treatment? Um, and the last question we're going to look at is concerning tattoos and piercings. So I'm sure that that will generate a sufficient amount of controversy. <laughs> All right, so let's start. The first then part of our catechism we're going to look at is what are we in fact commanded by the fifth commandment? First, I wanted to begin with a story. Uh, it's always good to begin these lessons with a story. And this lesson, uh, this lesson goes back to about 110 years ago in the country of Germany. There lived a, a splendid young man. His name was Meinrad. Okay, and this man, he was a very devout and holy man. He's, in fact, he he went often into this great Benedictine monastery that was in his area there in Germany in order to pray with the monks. And it was there um, that he, his life, in fact, was cut short when two robbers 
who had broken into the monastery, whom he had befriended, turned on, on this man, Meinrad, and killed him, put him to death. And of course, they were trying to find money on him, and all they found was uh, his hair shirt and, and um, some books. So, but nevertheless, this murder, uh, what happened? You know, were these guys ever caught? Well, the story turns out that, yes, the murderers were in fact caught, but it was strange the way that they were caught. Um, back then, of course, there was no cameras catching, you know, capturing the footage of the murder. But what happened was there was two crows that were, were friends of the monks um, at the monastery. And these two crows, these black birds, they witnessed the murder. And when these, these robbers left and fled out into, into the city, these crows followed them. And wherever these murderers went, they went into the city, their homes, they went into the taverns, everywhere they went, these, these crows followed them. And they were always there next to them. And so what happened was suspicion um, eventually was, was aroused to the point where people started putting two and two together, and the, the murderers confessed and finally uh, were taken into justice. And so you can use this example to show that while, you know, you think you might get away uh, after committing murder in this life, um, these crows, in a certain sense, which is the, the conscience of a man, will always um, be there to condemn you, to point the finger at you, knowing that it was wrong. That monastery in Germany, interestingly enough, in honor of, of Mainrad, who actually became a canonized saint, um, actually included on their coat of arms of the monastery, of that Benedictine monastery, they included two, the figure of two crows on their coat of arm and seal in honor of that man's memory. So now let's, let's begin then. Uh, what are we commanded by the fifth commandment, which is thou shalt not kill? Um, Hopefully you also have access to the outline that I prepared to take us through um, this, this course on the fifth commandment. But it says, by the fifth commandment, we are commanded to take proper care of our own spiritual and bodily well-beings and that of our neighbor. So that's, that's the commandment. Um, there's obviously a, a positive um, command, which is to take care of, right? We only think sometimes of these commandments in their negative, thou shalt not do this. But also we have to understand them from the positive command, which is to take care of your physical as well as your spiritual well-being and that of your neighbor. So then what is murder? Uh, well, murder is the voluntary and unjust killing of a human being. Okay, so murder obviously is a most grave sin. And you might say for two reasons. Number one, it's a violation of the right of God, who only is the, is the only one who has the right over life and death. So it violates the, the, the right of Almighty God. And number two, it robs the victim, murder robs the victim of the opportunity to further gain merit for, for eternal life and to prepare for death. So all the preparations that a normal person would have um, when his time is drawing near uh, to go to confession, to receive the sacrament of extreme unction, uh, to prepare for death in a holy way is cut short by the act of a murderer. It says in the book of, of uh, St. John 1, John chapter 3, verse 15, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, the, the saint says. 
The second point that we're going to bring up under the first section here um, will deal with the Fifth Commandment, how it forbids the direct killing of an innocent person by public or private authority. And so we're going to look into this now and, and go deeper. Now, one of the, the commands of the Fifth Commandment is that there, there would be no uh, mutilation of the body. Okay, So any type of mutilation of the body is forbidden. Now, of course, it becomes permissible um, to lose a limb in order to save your life. You know, I, I think of the, the story, and it's a, it's a bit of a graphic story. I won't go into all the details, hopefully. Um, but it's, it reminds me of the story of a young man whose name was Aaron Ralston. And the story goes um, that back in 2003, this young man, he loved hiking. He was always uh, going out every weekend, seeing what, what mountain peak he could hike. And in April of 2003, um, Aaron ended up going to the Blue John Canyon, which is in the, the, the southeast of Utah. And it was there that he began to hike one day when during um, midday through the hike and he was all by himself, he ended up slipping off of a boulder and he slipped because the, a rock that he had jumped on um, shifted and he fell into the, into the midst of this canyon and was pinned by this 800 pound uh, rock, his right arm pinned against the, the wall of the canyon. And so there's a book that he wrote about his story. It's called 127 Hours, um, Between a Rock and a Hard Place is another part of the title. And so he, he talks about how during that time as he hung there, um, you know, he slowly went through what little drink he had, um, what, what fluids and, and food that he had, and he had a video camera. And so he starts um, videotaping himself every day. And as the days go on, of course, his hope to release himself um, decreases. And it was on the fifth day uh, that he was, he was nearly exhausted. He had just filmed himself for, he thought, the last time, basically making a confession, you know, uh, saying to his parents how much he, he loved them and how, how sorry he was for, for, being, um, for being a bad son. And, you know, it was also during this time that uh, you, can, you can say that, you know, he made some very imprudent decisions uh, he was always very secretive about his plans, and so he didn't tell anybody where he was going that weekend. So, of course, no one knew where to search for this guy, this uh, this young man named Aaron. And so finally, after turning his video camera off, he, he suddenly realizes that he has a pocket knife. And he realizes that, yes, that his, he's, only, um, he's only pinned there by his arm. And so he does the unthinkable. He amputates his right arm and frees himself and thus saves his life. And obviously this, this is a very drastic example, but one which shows you that in order to save the life of the body, sometimes there may be an exception and that is one of those rare exceptions. Otherwise though, um, any type of unnecessary, you know, mutilation of the body or, or whatever, that is strictly forbidden. Of course, we know why, because the body is a sacred temple of the Holy Ghost. From the moment of baptism, our bodies are, are, are raised to a new level of grace, and so they must be respected. Now, I'd like to touch this issue of tattoos and piercings now before we go on, uh, because, you know, tattoos and piercings, obviously, and especially among the youth, are going to be considered possibly, uh, they're going to be interested in those things. Um, for the longest time, we might say that and still to this day, certain tattoos and piercings, they, they have a bad connotation um, because they represent 
um, subculture things, such as, you know, you would expect members of gangs and, and people who've been to prison to, uh, to have, you know, their bodies covered in tattoos and piercings. Um, so let's go through this. Obviously, I, I, I don't want to take a position before explaining the different uh, principles of tattoos and, uh, and whether or not the church, um, you know, blesses that. It's also true, and I, I can preface this with, uh, with this little story. Uh, there was once a man that I met, and he was interested in the Catholic faith. And uh, after talking to this man, you know, it was obvious his arms were just covered with tattoos. Obviously, he, he was um, uh, involved in, in, in a pretty wild teenage uh, years of his life. And so while he was talking to me, one of, the, one of his greatest fears was that he couldn't become Catholic because of these tattoos. And so, of course, I reassured him that that would have nothing to do with his conversion. But of course, I understand there are certain Protestant denominations and all who say that if you have a tattoo, you're pretty much going to hell. So obviously, you know, the, we have to have a, a balanced objective then as we um, go into this uh, question of tattoos. Uh, first of all, some people say you can't have tattoos only because uh, it's condemned in the Bible. Well, is that true? Well, let's take a look. First of all, in your outline, you can see I provided the, the verse from, um, from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. This concerns um, piercings. It says, and this is, this is um, the Holy Ghost speaking, quote, I adorned you with a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears. So, you know, obviously there's going to be times of history in different cultures in which these types of, of piercings were acceptable and, and normal. It's also true, as you see, the second point I provide, that the Bible forbids many things in the Old Testament, okay? So, such as uh, the eating of pork, um, such as shaving your beards in the temple, okay? It says, quote in Le Leviticus, do not clip your hair at the temples, nor spoil the edges of your beard. So what does that mean? That's, this is why the Orthodox Jews have such long beards. Um, does that mean that you can't trim your beard or, or shave? Uh, I think the society priest would be in trouble um, because we're supposed to be clean shaven. So my point in bringing those scripture quotes into this argument is to say that we cannot say that you cannot have tattoos because simply because the Bible forbids it. OK, so it's not true. Um, we can look then at the history of tattoos for certain cultures. We see that, in fact, in medieval Europe, tattoos were associated with religious pilgrimages. Okay, especially during the time of the Crusades, people, when they would, uh, you know, go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would receive often the, the tattoo of the sign of Jerusalem, of the cross of Jerusalem, sorry, on the, uh, on the right wrist, on the, on the back of your right wrist. And so that was a sign uh, that you had done this pilgrimage. Also, ta tattoos are common in Coptic Christian tradition. Okay, often in Egypt, Christians will get a small cross tattooed again on their wrist to identify them from the majority of the Muslims that live there. Okay, so that's again just looking at some of the history of it. Now to determine the morality of tattoos and piercings, uh, let us consider then the following uh, points. First and foremost, one must consider the physical safety and perception that such tattoos and piercings bring. So anything that's gonna you know, ruin or jeopardize the health of your body would be strictly forbidden. And one must consider the scandal, the perception, uh, which certain modern styles could bring to our neighbor. And, uh, and that's something that we have to weigh heavily. Uh, also, 
to be considered in this first point is the permanency of a tattoo. Often the youth regret these types of decisions later in life. I know someone who, who got a tattoo and uh, when they were young, 18, 19 years old, now they're in their 40s and they, they regret it. Uh, so secondly, the second thing we're going to look at is the intention. Okay, so the first and foremost was the physical safety and, and perception that such a tattoo or piercing brings. The second is, let's look at the intention. What is the reason for getting a tattoo or a piercing? Okay, is it, is it for instance, the tattoo? Is it a mark of honor, such as, you know, would be gotten by a military man or a policeman or a firefighter? Um, or is the intention as a sign of rebellion or vanity? Okay, as in the case with many of the pop culture tattoos, nose slash tongue piercings that we see in the world today. I mean, those those tattoos and those types of piercings are absolutely a sign of rebellion and and pure vanity, which is pride. Okay, and the third point we can see is that we must always, always bear in mind that by our Christian baptism, our bodies are elevated to the life of grace and should be treated like a holy temple. Okay, so those are the three points. Uh, we can review them quick. First and foremost, we consider the public, the sorry, the physical safety and perception. The second, what is the intention? Okay, and and third, we must always bear in mind um, that our bodies are in fact temples of the Holy Ghost. What is my personal opinion concerning uh, many tattoos? Uh, I think that they they can be compared to graffiti. Okay. When you when you're traveling and you see graffiti spray painted on the walls of the of the uh, of the bridges and, and underpasses on the road, uh, that's what I think. Very often, tattoos can be compared to. Um, why are we tattooing the body? Okay, it, it's, often it reveals a a further problem. I heard a priest one time say, and I think it's accurate, that perhaps people who seek after tattoos. Uh, and usually it's not just one. Usually it grows. The tattoo is always growing and they're always updating it. But this type of uh, person, usually they're striving for, this priest said, in, in a sense, they're striving for something that's permanent in their life. Whereas Catholics, when we're baptized, we know that on our soul there's an indelible mark. There's there's the, the seal of the baptism, right? And so in a certain sense, these people who are deprived of faith. They don't have the virtue of faith. They don't live the life of grace. And so they seek permanency in some sign that will, I don't know, that gives them the, the courage or, or the motivation um, to, to make it through certain points or, or moments of their life, which again, we can understand on a psychological level. Now, as regards the issue of piercings, of course, I think that we need to make some clear distinctions because it's perfectly acceptable and, and beautiful even for women to have uh, their ears uh, pierced and to wear jewelry. Um, and so this, this is uh, something which culture has accepted, but also uh, agrees with right reason as we understand that, um, that the woman represents life and the source of life. And so she ought to be adorned in a different way than, than a man. I think that a man uh, who seeks after piercings, uh, I think that he better be careful because it's going to look very feminine and uh, it might give a, uh, a message that he doesn't want to send. Uh, moving on to the question of euthanasia. This is another question that our youth are often um, bombarded with. You know, we hear it often in the news. 
people who are elderly or their quality of life is such that they just don't want to live anymore. And so the question is, is there ever a moment in which one can, um, you know, give one's permission to, to end your life? or to end another person's life. So the doctrine here of the church says that no matter what, euthanasia is always forbidden. It constitutes a grave sin. So no matter how sick a person may be, even at his own request, in order to relieve him of his pain, no one, not even the government, can take his life. Okay, this is very important that we understand that. On the question, because we're going to treat this question now as well, on the issue of when can treatment be stopped for the terminally ill. So someone is in a coma, is in the hospital, they're unresponsive, you know, they're, they're hooked up to a breathing machine. At what point in time uh, can the breathing machine be unplugged? And so, you know, there's a, there's a case that I remember uh, going back to 1995. Uh, obviously, many of the people listening are, are too young to, to recall this story. But in 1995 in Florida, there was a young lady. Her name was Teresa Schiavo, okay, Terry Schiavo. And this, this girl had suffered um, cardiac arrest and fell into a coma, okay? She was obviously in the hospital where she was on um, feeding tubes. Now, a feeding tube is just that. It's providing food. It's providing water um, to the person, okay? So the question was, she was in this coma for some time, and her husband... Um, her legal guardian was her husband. See, when you get married, your legal guardian becomes your spouse and no longer your parents. So you got to be very careful with the things you tell your spouse because in this case, the husband said that, that Terry Schiavo had told him before that if she was ever in a, in a moment in, in, you know, where her quality of life was, was reduced, um, that she would not want to live. And so he used this as um, his, his argument that the feeding tubes should be removed. And so there was this big debate, and the family was fighting that, no, the, the feeding tubes would remain, that they would take care of her, but her husband said no. So the, it ended up um, you know, going to court, and they sided with the, with the husband. Feeding tubes were removed, and the poor girl slowly starved to death. Um, this became a national story. Uh, even, even the Pope was weighing in on this at the time, Pope John Paul II, and he condemned it, rightly so. Because what happened here was, you know, you refuse food and water to somebody. So if you ever do that, you are starving them. They will die of starvation or dehydration, which is another cause of death. Um, in the case where it's what we call extraordinary means, okay, so food and water and oxygen are ordinary means, and they must be provided at all times. Um, extraordinary means are the issues of uh, certain ventilators or breathing machines. Now, in the case of artificial respiration, uh, when can those, when can the plug, so to speak, be pulled? Um, you would say that that can only happen, can only occur after a reasonable time. Once the person's been put on a machine that's breathing for them, well, they must be left on that machine to the degree that they're showing signs of, of improvement. But after a reasonable time passes, if there's no improvement, and again, this, this machine is breathing for them, so it's doing extraordinary things. Um, in this case, you know, by pulling the plug and turning the machine off, you're not introducing a new cause of death, but rather you're letting nature take its course. So there's some other 
um, medical injury or some other dilemma that is that the person has. And so that will take its course and it won't be that you're starving the person like in the case of Terry Schiavo. So we have to be very clear on the teachings here because uh, we see so many things in the news today which, um, which are a clear violation of the fifth commandment. Another question we can see is number three, a mother who is bearing a child must be very careful to protect and to preserve the life of that child. Um, life begins, of course, at the moment of conception. And this touches the issue of abortion. What is abortion? Well, abortion is the termination of a child's life within the womb of his mother. And it's always forbidden in every situation. Okay, not even to save the life of a mother can an unborn child be killed by direct abortion. Now, abortion is certainly a mortal sin. And it carries with it a most severe penalty of what we call automatic excommunication for the woman who has the abortion, as well as anyone who helped her in any way. So that would include any of the nurses, the doctors who are working at these Planned Parenthood facilities, or a boyfriend or a husband or a father or anybody who's going to drive you there to get the, the surgery done or who's going to uh, pay or support you in any way. They will all incur the excommunication. Obviously, it's, it's good to, to, to mention, too, among, among our youth that we should pray every day. We should pray every day for the ending of abortion. Um, roughly 3,000 babies are aborted every day in the United States alone. And some 125,000 babies are aborted around the world every day. So you can imagine this is certainly a sin which cries to heaven for vengeance. And let us pray that, um, that one day we might see the world return to acknowledge the sanctity of life at all stages of life, from the moment of conception to the moment of, of, of natural death. Um, so from the crib to the grave, uh, Almighty God, this fifth commandment applies. There's never a moment in, in the middle where it's somehow suspended. To the question, fourth point, under, still under the first uh, section here, um, to the fourth qu question of, is it lawful to kill animals for food? Of course it is. God gave man animals for his own use. Okay, so therefore, uh, we, can, we can end this debate pretty quick. Those who would say or suggest that, that we ought not to allow hunting. It's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. We see that God in the Old Testament even commanded the killing of animals for sacrifice uh, in the Old Testament. Now, it's also, we also have to mention that it's our duty to care for animals. Okay, it would be wrong to torture them or to kill them without purpose. Okay. Now, on the other hand, animals ought not to be shown exaggerated affection as though they were idols. And we see that today. It's so ironic, in fact, in our culture, that as we have very little respect for the sanctity of life in the mother's womb, um, we at the same time have some of the most severe and harshest laws when it comes to the endangering of certain animals. Um, and it's just, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. And it reminds me of the saying, be a hero and save a whale, but save a baby and go to jail. And so let us continue to pray um, that, yes, that the civil authorities wake up to what is going on in the world, that, you know, that we have this respect and love for the sanctity of human life over animal life. So now we're going to move on to the second um, part of our notes and we're going to take a look at this question when is it lawful to take another's life um, 
In short, the answer is there's three kinds of quote-unquote justifiable moments where one can take another's life. Um, we'll quickly, we'll list the three, and then we'll try to explain the three. Um, so the, the three are that you can do so if it's in self-defense, number one. Number two, what we call capital punishment, which is, of course, when the state puts to death, executes a criminal. And the third is what we call the doctrine of just war. So starting with the first one, the, the, the law, it is lawful to take another's life in self-defense. Um, as in the case, for instance, of a woman, she may kill a man who is assaulting her uh, in order to defend herself. One may also, in, under this uh, notion, defend one's life or property against an enemy, even going so far as to kill that person. Um, but we have to take in consideration that we must use what we call proportionate means to ward off the attacker. So obviously it would be wrong for a man to, to be shot, to, shot dead uh, for trying to steal, steal your chickens. Um, you know, you would, you would have every right to run him off or, or to, pers you know, to prosecute him according to the law, but to take his life for an act of, of theft is seen as excessive means, and so that's out of proportion. Um, so the, that's the first uh, justifiable moment, is what we call the, the issue of self-defense. The second one is going to be the, the question of capital punishment. Here is when the state executes a criminal for certain crimes. And we actually covered this in the previous uh, lesson, so if you would like more information, you, I'd just like to recommend you to, to go back and look at the principles, look at the guidelines that would, that would instruct us on, on how and when the state has the authority uh, to condemn a criminal to death. Um, and we can also see how the church weighs in on that topic as well. In the third answer here with the just war, this is what I wanted to spend a little bit more time on. Um, the doctrine of just war is given to us mainly by the great St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. The teaching is derived um, from the fact that a nation has a right to exist and therefore must protect itself. Now, for a just war to be launched, we can consider the following principles. There are four principles, okay? So not to make this too complicated, but these are definitely uh, important for us to understand and make, make sense of what's going on, in, in, especially in modern history, as we study history so as to not repeat it. Well, let us try to look at these principles here of when a just war would apply. Again, there's four principles. Number one, you must see that the intention of entering a war has to be in order to correct an evil, an evil that has been gravely inflicted upon your country. So intention matters. Number two, that all possible forms of negotiations have been exhausted. So that there has been an effort, many efforts, to um, come to a peaceful uh, resolution. But once those efforts have failed and there, again, no negotiation is possible, well, then that would factor into a second point uh, in, in this argument. Third is that there must be a high probability of a successful outcome so that victory would be attainable. And fourthly, that there is a proportion between the desired outcome, which is peace, and the damage and disorder um, that will result, the evil that will be inflicted. So there has to be a proportionality between the two because obviously war is, is evil. 
and war will result in many people, many lives being taken, much property uh, being destroyed. Um, and so obviously, in order to rectify that, what will be the good that will be that will come out of it? Will that good be proportionately greater? Um, and and in, to, in the degree that it is, well, then we can perhaps look at the, the, the validity of such a just war. So now that we've seen um, under the just war section what a just war is and the four principles that must be there in order for it to be valid, we will now see what limitations there are of law, of sorry, limitations of war. Uh, because no doubt there will be certain actions that just because it's wartime doesn't mean um, that there's no laws and that there's no um, respect for uh, good action and, and order. So first of all, we, we would say that the doctrine of just war teaches that civilians, priests, and medical personnel must not be targeted. If they are directly targeted, it's murder, plain and simple. If, however, uh, these non-combatants, as we call them, civilians, priests, and medical people, they're non-combatants, if those non-combatants are killed indirectly from war, uh, then it's, of course, not seen as murder. Uh, so indirect and direct is the key there. You know, again, that means your your effort is to avoid um, inflicting casualties upon anyone who's not a soldier in, in the enemy's army. Um, one could argue, as our notes say, that the United States was justified in entering World War II, not only because of the attack uh, at Pearl Harbor, but also because of the evil of Hitler's reign, Hitler's Nazis, who were taking over the nations of Europe at the time. And so obviously the United States um, was in a position where its own, um, its own peace could one day be disturbed um, by the events of what's going on in Europe. Now, World War II was certainly the bloodiest conflict um, in in modern day history, in the end of that war, over 400,000 Americans will be killed, which testifies to the fact of just how evil modern conflicts can be. So while it may have been argued, again, uh, as we just covered, that it was justifiable for the United States of America to enter World War II, nearly all theologians would agree that the way we ended it, and especially with dropping the atomic bombs over Japan, um, that that was not justifiable. And here's why. Because again, remember the rule that you must not target directly these uh, non-combatants. And so when the atomic bombs were dropped over the cities of Japan, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they were dropped over them with the intention of directly uh, killing any and all people in, in, in those uh, cities. And so over 200,000 people were to over 200,000 people were killed in the bombs that were dropped. Also, we see the um, one thing that we really want to highlight is that the purpose of war is to bring about peace as soon as possible. So therefore, a war with the intention of stalemate, dragging on the conflict for years and years, that kind of approach is seen as immoral. Uh, we see that more and more in modern history. For instance, the Vietnam War which lasted some 19 years and claimed the lives of 58,220 Americans. Uh, in the end, what was brought about by the Vietnam War, there was a ceasefire that was signed, uh, but there was no clear victory. 
And so, again, going back to your principles, you know, is victory uh, the, the probability of victory? How high is that? And and again, knowing that the purpose of war is in order to secure peace. Um, and in this case, no peace really was secured because even on the day that the that the U.S. troops were withdrawing from Vietnam after having the, the peace treaty signed, uh, the North Viet Cong was already plotting and, and ready to attack once again the uh, South Vietnamese. And so we see that all the all that blood, all that investment of time and sacrifice um, was really in the end, gained very little. Uh, we also see that the, the war in Afghanistan, as a second example, has lasted actually even longer than the Vietnam conflict um, since we went to war in the early 2000s and it's still um, not been completely uh, worked out. And we see that many Americans have died. And so again, these perpetual conflicts with no end in sight do not agree with the just war principles. Uh, they seem rather to be uh, with the to support the theory of war by expansion, which again is not does not factor into the defense of a nation. A nation that is unjustly attacked has the right um, to proportionally respond to that nation who is the aggressor. And the, for the final two points to be made concerning the limitations of war, we know that prisoners cannot be tortured or killed, and also that during war, private property must still be respected. So yes, therefore, looting is a sin. Uh, of course, it would be justifiable to destroy your enemy's weapons, because that's all a part of, of just war perception, that you're there to, to uh, render your enemy um, without the ability to attack you. And now let us see the third and final part of our catechism here this morning, um, which is going to be concerning anger, hatred, and revenge. So we'll go through these three rather quickly in order to end the catechism. Um, first of all, what is anger? Anger is defined in the catechism as a strong feeling of displeasure combined with the desire to punish the offender. Now, of course, anger is opposed to the Spirit of Christ. Why? Well, because our Lord, He was meek and humble of heart. Our Lord taught us to even love your enemy, to do good to those who persecute you. Um, and we also see it says in Scripture, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So therefore, uh, anger works not the justice of God. We know that. Therefore, we must strive our hardest to, uh, to dispel um, ang angry thoughts and to avoid this, um, this trap. The second point that we're going to see is hatred. Now, hatred is a strong dislike or ill will towards somebody. Um, you could say that hatred is kind of like a habitual anger. Okay, Anger, which is habitually in the person, which is, sees no good in that person in which you hate. Yes, it is a sin um, because it's a direct violation of the command of Christ when he said to us, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And it also confirms in the first book of John 3.15 that everyone who hates his brother, St. John says, is a murderer. And so we realize that both anger and hatred is opposed um, to, to the charity of Christ. And finally, the third point we see is revenge. So the anger and hatred will build up and will usually result in a desire for revenge. Revenge is that desire to inflict immoderate punishment on somebody from the motive of anger. 
And we should always remember that revenge is a serious sin it, uh, against justice and charity. And we are warned in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, that he that shall seek to revenge himself shall find vengeance from the Lord. So that concludes the catechism, just, uh, just under 40 minutes. So it was a little longer today, but certainly full of many uh, interesting teachings of the church concerning the fifth commandment. Uh, hopefully you remember uh, some of these principles and points. And so now let's end with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall there be, world without end. Amen. St. John Bosco, pray for us. St. Dominic Savio, pray for us. Our Lady, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. God bless you.